With reverence and godly fear, let us open our Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. This chapter has six lessons for us. In verses 1 through 7 is a marriage dinner. A king plans for his son. And it is simply a parable to describe the invitation of the glorious gospel of fat things of the New Testament. Verses 8 through 14 describe that message being taken to the Gentiles since the Jews made light of it. Verses 15 through 22, the Pharisees tried the Caesar trap on Jesus. 23 through 33, the Sadducees tried the resurrection trap on Jesus. 34 through 40, another Pharisee tried the great command trap. And then in verses 41 through 46, Jesus wins with the son of David trap. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. That long-haired, effeminate, hermaphrodite, John Lennon look-alike that hangs in some churches and hangs in some homes, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible had short hair because the Bible says long hair is a shame for a man to have it. Those pictures are pictures that the devil has created to caricaturize and belittle and demote and denigrate the Lord of glory. We want to love the Lord Jesus Christ of Matthew 22. He's not going to beg any of these men. He's going to shut their mouths and destroy their arguments. He's not going to chase them. We do not crawl to anyone that doesn't have a love for the Word of God. We preach it. If you like it, great. We'll befriend you. If you don't like it, great. We won't see you again. That's just the way it is in the Bible. You know, other ministries want to pack their houses and get a coliseum that they can fill with 15,000, but 14,800 of them are not real lovers of Christ. All you got to do is watch their lives. And so they modify the message to increase the multitude. Jesus didn't do it. Jesus would harden the message to drive the multitude away. John chapter 6 being a great example. The use of parables being a great example. We love souls, but we only love souls that are born again. We only love God's elect souls. Paul said, I endure all things for the elect's sake. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20, or, some, or 2 and 10. 2 Timothy 2 and 10. And so the doctrine that makes up our faith is certain and impregnable. What is doctrine? It's a body of knowledge. Don't let that word confuse you or intimidate you. The word doctrine just means a set of beliefs, a set of tenets. And it is our, the body of knowledge that makes up our religion. It's certain and impregnable, which means it cannot be assaulted. It cannot be destroyed. And Jesus shows that in short order with few words. And we want to delight in it. You'll learn in this chapter the doctrine that Jesus Christ taught on earth. That he destroyed the Jews for making fun of, making light of his son's gospel and mistreating him and his preachers. That God blessed the gospel to explode among the Gentiles, but it brought in reprobates to later be cast out in the great day of judgment. God set up the kings and kingdoms of this world under Christ, and we give them their proper place. God has raised the dead and will yet raise the dead. And it is a crucial fact of the past and the future. The resurrection of the dead. God has made his religion as simple as love. Supreme love of God and then love of our neighbors. God anointed Jesus from the line of David. And he is both God's son, David's son, and David's Lord. Because he's the God-man. And we want to see him for all that he is. You will witness Jesus Christ destroy the confidence, the lifestyle, and the false theories of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. You then, and I then, need to examine ourselves as to which or how many of these faults that the Jews had that we ourselves are guilty of. And Lord, help us not just to think lowly of the Jews, of that generation that crucified the Lord of glory, but help us to think poorly of ourselves if there's any compromise in our lives on any of these points. 
Verses 1 through 14, let me read the 14 to you at once and then break it in half. It could be called one parable of 14 verses. It could be called two parables of seven verses each. There is a division after verse 7 of some importance, but it doesn't really matter. It's picture language to convey two lessons, and we want them both. I read to you the first 14 verses. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Amen. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Amen and amen. amen. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He addressed them in Matthew chapter 21, and from verse 33 through 46 of Matthew 21, he rebuked and condemned the Pharisees, and they knew he had rebuked and condemned them. They knew that he was promising to take the kingdom of God away from the Jews and give it to Gentiles. They heard his language, that if they fell on him, they'd be broken, but if he fell on them, he would grind them to powder. They resented him for what he said, and they wanted to lay their hands on him and kill him there, but they feared the people because the people knew that Jesus was at least a prophet. And that's what Matthew 21 tells us. And so that's his audience. We must move quickly through these verses or we will become cumbered down in details that you may consider later, but are not necessary for us today. And so the Lord Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven, again, by parable, to another event. Matthew 13 last week, the kingdom of heaven was compared to eight different things for five lessons that we got. But here's a different comparison. And the kingdom of heaven, do not let it be some mysterious thing to you. I use different words for it each time I mentioned it last Lord's Day. And I'm telling you, it is the New Testament gospel religion of Jesus Christ. Right. It's his reign over believers. It's his reign and headship over his churches. It's the New Testament era of John, Jesus, and apostles. It's the new covenant versus the old covenant. It's not complicated. It's just that Jesus chose the word kingdom because he was its king. And it is a kingdom. And he is its king. And he is our king. And Pilate knew he was a king. Though he killed him for sake of the Jews. And so the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of Jesus Christ, earlier this morning when we began, nearly an hour ago, I shared with you from Hebrews that a summary of the kingdom of heaven 
can be Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, that long, wonderful list of good things that are listed there. Because it's just a description of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He's the king. He's on Mount Zion. He's in the heavenly Jerusalem. And there's a host of the spirits of just men made perfect up there with him. An innumerable company of angels. Jesus is the head of all of that. But there is a spiritual reign of him over his people that they enter by baptism, by swearing allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is comparing his reign, his spiritual reign, over his followers this way. A king wanted to honor his son by throwing a huge wedding reception, a huge dinner, a huge party at great expense. The American tradition of the bride's family having to pay for the wedding is absurd. It's the way it's done, but it's absurd. It's unscriptural, doesn't mean it's a sin, it's just absurd. Why should the family that's losing a daughter have to pay for losing a daughter? The family that's gaining a daughter should pay for gaining a daughter. It's a minor point. It, forget it. Don't let it distract you from what is being taught here. But you can tell that it's the father of the groom that is throwing the party for the wedding. And he has, he has spent some money. It's an ox roast. And it may be multiple oxen that are being roasted. And there are fatlings that have been fatted up for this occasion. And it's going to be a huge feast. And so he invites. And this is a picture of the gospel. Does the Bible tell us anywhere in the Bible that the gospel is like a feast of fat things? Does it tell us wonderful things like that? It sure does. It sure does. To know the Lord of glory, to know his son, and to know the things he's done for us, and to know what is in that list in Hebrews 12, that is a feast. And to think on those things, and to meditate on them, and to delight in them, and to talk to them about someone else, that is pure pleasure. It is a feast. But we don't want to get too involved in the details of a parable, because the parable is for a lesson. And the lesson is this in the first part, in the first seven verses. The lesson is, God sent preachers to invite the Jews to this feast about his son. By the way, if you're looking at your handout and you weren't able to pick up what I said in two words, the king's wedding for his son is the NT space gospel, the New Testament gospel. Now, I have read you 14 verses. Let me just read some explanations to you to try to make this as efficient as possible. This feast here has nothing to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb elsewhere. It is not related to it at all. Don't be confused. This has nothing, or maybe a little tiny bit indirectly, to do with Christ's marriage to the church. Because this is a parable. And the parable is... I invited the Jews, the Jews made light of it, the Jews killed my preachers, I burned them up. That's it. Right. It's not any more complicated than that. It's not Ephesians 5 of Jesus Christ's love for the church. This is simply a word picture to describe the blessings of the gospel. Turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah 20. Let's go to Isaiah 55 first. Isaiah 55. We had this recently. I, I, don't want to turn, I don't want to turn to too many places because I'm assuming that you know places that I reference. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Ho! That, that should get your attention. Ho! Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. I'll tell you about Jesus Christ, the son of David. I'll give you information that makes your soul come alive. 
I'll give you free food. It'll be wine and milk. I'll satisfy you and it'll all be free. Why are you working so hard and laboring so hard and paying such a cost for that that doesn't satisfy? Life in this world doesn't satisfy. That's why they're drunkards and on drugs and living dysfunctional lives and all divorced up because this life doesn't make them happy. This is the happy life right here. And it's knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and all the things that pertain to Him. If you come back to chapter 25, chapter 25, yes, chapter 25 and verse 6, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people. Do you know what that, who that includes? It includes us because we're not Jews. And in this mountain, that is Mount Zion of the New Testament that we read about in Hebrews 12, in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, a, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. Now, just read that verse. That verse is about the good life. That verse is about the best wine. These verses are about the best food. The king made a feast of oxen and fatlings. The best food, the best fare, filet mignon, beef wellington for my wife. But the Jews didn't come. We're back in Matthew 22. The Jews didn't come. Let me do this with you very quickly. The kingdom of heaven in this passage is the spiritual rule of Jesus with believers, his local churches, and the gospel administration of worship preached by John the Baptist and the apostles. The certain king is God who loved his son Jesus and gave him the New Testament kingdom. The wedding is the gospel church administration of the new covenant with Messiah. The servants are prophets and apostles who preached and invited the Jews to believe on the Son of God. Those who were bidden were the Jews. They were the first invited by the gospel. The dinner of oxen and fatlings pictures the glorious blessings of the gospel of grace. The all things are ready is the final fulfillment of Bible prophecy and divine timing for this great celebration. They made light of it is the carnal response by evil Jews to the preaching about Messiah. The remnant is those wicked Jews who slew the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. The king's armies are the Romans under Titus who became Caesar who destroyed the Jews in 70 AD. The next servants are apostles and preachers of the New Testament after Pentecost. The ones found in the highways are Gentiles by universal preaching of the gospel. The guests, both bad and good, are Gentile converts that filled the churches of Christ. The king coming in to see the guests is the final judgment before the throne of God. The wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ, which covers true saints of God. The speechless condition of the rude wretch is his lack of excuse or defense for sins. He has no way to defend himself in the eyes of holy judgment. The servants are the next servants, the last servants in this parable, are angels called by Jehovah to separate the wicked from the righteous that we learned in Matthew 13, that the angels would come in the great day and separate the good fish from the bad fish and would separate the tares from the wheat. The outer darkness with its attendant miseries of gnashing and wailing of teeth gnashing of teeth and wailing is hell, where spinner, sinners spend eternity. And so I've just explained 14 verses to you from Matthew 22, 1 through 14. The first lesson is national rejection of the gospel by Jews and their ruin for doing so. The gospel was first sent to the Jews, and the Bible tells us that plainly. You are to, he, Jesus told his apostles when he ascended up into heaven, wait for me in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high, and then be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The Jews had little use for the gospel. They did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Only a few did. They killed those preachers. They rejected the gospel so that it was sent to the Gentiles. They were utterly destroyed by Roman armies, and therefore great care must be taken to obey the gospel. We have another opportunity. By hearing the gospel today, how carefully will we listen to it? When you look at doctrine number one, God was angry. Jews made light of the New Testament kingdom. Servants inviting guests 
were John and apostles, or prophets and apostles. Either one will work. Under doctrine number one, God's anger burned up the Jews by Rome or Romans or Titus, whatever you like the best, in 70 A.D. That's doctrine number one. I am going over this first part fast because I've taught it to you before. We even referred to it last Lord's Day. I do want you to understand those seven verses. It culminated in Jesus destroying the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's in verse 7. The terror, the terrible sin is in verse 5. They made light of it. Now you may not have killed a preacher yet, though you would like to, but it's verse 5 that gets most of us. They made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And if you go to Luke, it's just as evil to be so worked up about your wife that you're not following Christ like you should be. A wife is no better than a farm. A wife is no better than merchandise. It is another distraction. If you're saying, why are you saying that about something good in the Bible? I'll say this to you. You do not understand spiritual religion, and that is why you differ from Jesus, John, and Paul so much. Because Jesus, John, and Paul would not wreck their lives by marriage. You say wreck their lives? Yes. They could not serve Jesus Christ. They could not serve God married as well as they could single. So John, Jesus, and others, including Anna, if you want a woman thrown in, and Paul didn't have wives, even though they could have. And Paul said, I would that all men were like me. Thank you for marrying me. I am not like Jesus, John, and Paul to that extent. But I just want to say that to you, that anything can be a distraction. And if, if you read the different accounts last night, you know that Luke went after, I've got to go home to my wife. Oh, you poor thing. Why do you have to go home to your wife? What about the kingdom of heaven? Let's look now at verses 8 through 14. So, he has invited the Jews, and he has invited them in multi-layered invitations by different preachers. There's been prophets, there's been John the Baptist, there's been the apostles, and there were 40 years of preaching to them before 70 AD by men the, the apostles ordained, and they refused. And when you read the book of Acts, you see the Jews refusing it over and over again, even blaspheming against the preachers, trying to kill the preachers, accusing the, creature, the, the preachers of crimes to the Roman government. And so God destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that's a subject for another time. That subject is dealt with in the Bible many, many times. Right. It is one of the great wars in the history of man. The Romans bringing their legions around Jerusalem and leveling that city. Until Terentius Rufus, the commander of the 10th legion, pulled a plow across Mount Zion. The Jews know him by name. They've never forgotten him. They plowed Mount Zion to make sure they ripped up even foundations. The only stones that were ever left there were just a few for men to understand that this place once had gigantic stones in place. Because you can't believe the size until you see them. Right. And so there were a few left. But the buildings were just ripped to the ground and foundations tore up. As soon as the Romans found out that there was so much gold in Jerusalem that it had melted and run into the crevices of the stones... Titus couldn't keep them from destroying the city because when you've got a financial motive like that, you'll tear apart stones to get at that gold that may be inside that melted that ran in there. And on and on we could go, but that is not for today at all. It might be for Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, I'm tempted right now to help you understand that the destruction of Jerusalem stretches from the books of Moses to the end of the Bible. Amen. Not Matthew 24. I won't touch Matthew 24. If you come back on Wednesday evening... I won't touch Matthew 24, Mark 13, or Luke 21, which are the three chapters about the abomination of desolation 
and the wrecking of Jerusalem upon that generation, I'm going to go everywhere else but there and show you that it's the, it is a huge prophecy in the Bible that most churches don't even know about, let alone preach, right. because they'd be called anti-Semitic or something like that, and we're just going to preach the Bible the way it is. Yeah. Jesus was pretty anti-Semitic, though he was a Jew. That's why he sent the gospel to us. And that's what we have right now in verse 8. Then saith he, this is the king. He's invited this huge wedding celebration to honor his son, and the Jews won't take it. So, in verse 8, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Those which were bidden first. The Jews were not worthy. Do you remember what Paul said to the Jews when they blasphemed in Acts chapter 13? He said, You have judged yourselves, we need a word, unworthy of eternal life. With those which were bidden were not worthy. And so he assigned his apostles to go into the highways and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. And this was primarily Paul because Paul left preaching to Jews and went and preached to Gentiles throughout the Roman world. So those servants went out into the highways. They went everywhere. Jesus said, go and preach the gospel to every creature, not just Jews, but preach it to the Gentiles. And when they did that, and they went out there and preached everywhere, lots of people responded. They responded for family reason. They responded for, they wanted some, something religious in their lives. And so churches were filled, but they weren't all God's elect. There were some bad people in there. That means that were not God's elect, that were not saved. Unsaved people came into the church. And so that's what it means by bad and good in verse 10. But the, the, kingdom, the outward kingdom of Jesus Christ, his churches were filled with people. And then we find in verse 11 that there's going to be a great day of judgment coming when that king is going to inspect everyone that claimed to be a follower of his son and wanting to be at the wedding of his son, wanting a part in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 7, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works and in thy name cast out devils? And then Jesus will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know that's in the Bible. That's Matthew 7. And the word many is attached to preachers who will claim to be followers of the Lamb of God, who will be rejected by the Lamb of God. Many. And so look among yourselves, except only look at one person, yourself. Are you one of the many or of the few? Which brings us to that 14th verse. For many are called, but few are chosen. The 13th verse was, God's sending them into hell. The king shall say to his servants, and these servants are angels, because we learned that in Matthew 13, didn't we? Didn't we learn that preachers do not have the final throwing of souls into hell, but the angels do? That was Matthew 13 two times. About the tares and about the net. The angels would separate the tares from the wheat, and the angels would separate the good fish from the bad fish. The good fish would be put in vessels to be used, and the bad fish would be destroyed. We learned that last Sunday from Matthew chapter 13. Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Intense distress forever is what the verse describes. Jesus said, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. In Matthew chapter 7. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it is described as Jesus being revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews didn't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They go to hell. Most of the Gentiles, many, verses few, most of the Gentiles that claim to believe it go to hell. Many are called, 
but few are chosen. And so throughout the Bible, because of this, this is not an isolated lesson. So that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he spent two years and longer with the church at Corinth. Then he wrote them 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote them 2 Corinthians. I mean, he knew these people very well. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's Paul to his best friends. So don't count me an enemy this morning. Count me a friend. I'm telling you the truth. The people that say they love you never tell you the truth. The truth is, there is a great day of judgment coming. When we'll be examined before God, whether we are good or bad, whether we have a wedding garment on or not, and that wedding garment is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that makes us accepted in the beloved to our God. Let me talk about numbers for just a second. Many are called, but few are chosen. Does that mean 50-50? What does it mean to be called? It means that they heard this thing about religion, and they heard this thing about Jesus, and they liked the church because it was friendly, and it had good fried chicken on Sunday afternoons, and so they decided to join it. They decided to get baptized when they were eight years old by some poorly taught Baptist preacher because their eight-year-old friends got baptized. And so these bad, these non-elect, unregenerate people get into the churches. And there's many of them versus the few. I just, I just trust the Lord. Right. I just trust Him. And so when He says, many are called, but few are chosen, I want you to think about it with me for a moment. Jesus used the word many in the great day of judgment will say, Lord, Lord. Think proportions. Few are elect. Many are called by the gospel. Most aren't even called by it. Let's throw out a number. Let's throw out 10%. Do you know what that means? The Earth's population today is 7.8 billion. Let's use 10%. There are 78 million that are elect. There are 780 million that are called. And the rest are not even elect or called. Let's throw out 20%. There's 156 million that are elect. There's 1.56 billion that are called. The other 6 billion are reprobates. You say, those numbers are frightening. When God's elect was primarily found among the nation of Israel, what were the words the Bible used for it? Blank, blank, blank. Let's, let me give you the last one. Remnant. And what in front of it? A very small remnant. Very small remnant. You say, I don't like your 10%. Why did I pick 10%? Because it's a tithe? You're a genius. Isaiah 6, 9 through 13. Right. Remember? Mm-hmm. His own nation, where the church and the state were the same, he left a tenth. Let me tell you something if you make it. Now, you can make your calling and election sure, so don't be intimidated by my words. Make your calling and election sure. If you make it, I want to tell you something that you're going to do on the other side that you should be doing now. You should be shouting the praise of the God who chose you, loved you, and sent his son for you. You should be shouting praise right now that you are here, where you're hearing the words of God laid out very plainly, unapologetically, without compromise, and you should be shouting praise. Because it is the love of the gospel that is one of the great evidences of eternal life. Right. You say, do those numbers bother you? There's part of me they bother. There's part of me that I just want to celebrate and shout. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. I just wanted you to understand those first 14 verses.
two lessons. Doctrine number two, since the feast had empty seats, God invited Gentiles. God invited Gentiles. Doctrine number two that we learn in verses 8 through 15, through 14, the gospel is preached shotgun style, so unsaved get in. Or you could use the word reprobates get in. God will visit guests to examine them on judgment day. For those that are listening to this sermon later, there is a handout that the audience is filling out, the audience that is here assembled, and the audience by live stream. In order to assist them, to help them understand the lesson, I have tried this additional vehicle to help. The wedding garment we need is Christ's righteousness. Outer darkness is other words for lake of fire. Many are called equals the gospel. Few are chosen equals election. In the Bible, it uses the words wailing and gnashing of teeth. I mean, grinding your teeth in intense distress and pain. That's, the, that's Jesus. This idea of Jesus that people have is so different from the Bible. Jesus talked about wailing and gnashing of teeth more than anybody else, all the other people in the Bible combined. But that's how Jesus described what it's going to be like under the torment of God. Jesus used those words. But let me talk to you for just a moment about hell. There's three things that men hate after death. Now, they hate death, but death is so easy. Death is a picnic compared to what comes after death. Those people that write suicide notes and say, I've decided to end it all, are really messed up because all they've done is start it. The terrible things that are going to come after death. Three things men hate. Let's see if we can think about them. Men hate darkness. I mean darkness that you can feel where there is no option for light. Men hate darkness. Men hate drowning. And men hate fire. Those three things are three of the most terrible things in life. Together, they make hell. Because hell is called, in 2 Peter 2 and Jude, the, the blackness of darkness forever. There's no opportunity for light, and it's the blackness of darkness forever. And hell is called the lake of fire, where you get to drown and suffocate in fire. Not just burning your fingertip on the stove, but in hell fire. That's what the Bible teaches, called the lake of fire. Those aren't my words. I don't know why they're preached anymore, why they're not preached anymore, except men have compromised in pulpits. Right. Let's get to the next lesson. How's that for a lesson? Is that, is that how you win friends and influence people, is to preach like that? Jesus had these Pharisees standing there, and he knew they wanted to kill him. That is what he dumped on them. Right. Do you know what he told them? I'm going to destroy you murderers and burn up your city, and I'm going to invite the church of Greenville and all other Gentiles that want to believe on Christ. And we've prayed for all those other churches around the world today several times already. Next lesson, verses 15 through 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Nice fellows, aren't they? And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me? Ye hypocrites, show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this an image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. That doesn't mean that they believed. It just meant they marveled at how wise he was to cut them off with just a few syllables. 
and expose their error. Jesus had condemned the Pharisees in ways they clearly understood, and they were against him. So they come to try to do him in with this question. After a discussion of how they might do it, look at verse 15, they took counsel. This was their best shot at our Lord Jesus Christ. They took their best shot. They had a council together to figure out what they were going to try to, how they were going to try to trap him. They land on the legal issue of civil authority. These nationalistic fools, fathers of today's Zionists, presumed on Jewish superiority. And they presumed on it this way. We're God's people. This is God's nation. Why should we pay taxes to Caesar, who's a Roman across the Mediterranean in the boot of Italy? They were trying to get the Lord Jesus and trap him. They could only read and remember God's historical blessings on their nation and not all the warnings that the Bible gives to that nation. They had been a rebel nation, and Malachi had warned of a coming curse and fire upon them in the last book of the Old Testament. With Romans occupying their land, the Jews were very split about civil government. There are many Christians today that think civil authority is fair game for criticism. I can't stand them. I have been exposed to them from my earliest years. So many Christians think that civil authority is fair game for criticism. It is less fair game for criticism than the other four spheres of authority. They are gods on earth with a little g. That is what the Bible calls them. They are nothing like the Lord or the apostles Peter and Paul in their plain doctrine of submission to civil authority. There are Christians so stupid that their first question to me is, is your church 501c3? They have visited this church and asked me to my face. They write our website. Is your church 501c3? It is one of our FAQs on our website. What if we were? So what? Anyone asking that question? I don't want them a thousand mile, within a thousand miles of this church. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. Right. What is 501c3? It is asking the IRS for confirmation that you are a not-for-profit to deduct and get the benefit of the government by deducting your contributions to that organization. A church doesn't need it. And the IRS code says a church doesn't need it. But if a church wanted to go ahead and get that little document, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Listen, these, these Christians that we run in today are more important for us than this lesson in the sense that we're not going to run into Pharisees and Herodians, but we're going to run into some of these so-called patriots. And all they do is love their own money. And so they want to fight against the taxing authority of the government. They say, if you ask the IRS for permission and to confirm you that you are a not-for-profit in order for your contributions to be deductible, you're giving up the sovereignty of Christ to Caesar. Oh, they'll just throw that at you. They don't have a clue about any of that. My Christ is the head of Caesar. Right. And my Christ told me to pay Caesar. That right. Caesar has a lot of stuff he's got to do. And he should get a paycheck as much as you get a paycheck. No, he should get a paycheck before you get a paycheck so he can help you get your paycheck. That is Romans 13 and verse 6. Right. The Bible says that they must be about their business continually so they deserve to be paid. But you're giving up the sovereignty of Christ to Caesar. Okay, Here, here's what you need. We want short answers like the Lord. Right. I'm not even to the show me your money short answer. Here's this short answer. When Paul was on trial for his life, Will you find me the verse where he said, I appeal to Christ. I want you to learn short answers for these rebels. And you say, the steam is coming out from... No, it's worse than you think. I despise them. They know nothing. They're rabble, rebel that should be ground under an M1. That's a tank that weighs 60 tons and goes 45 
They're rebel. They are no different than BLM. They're anti-government rabble. Do you know what it says in the Bible when Paul was on trial for his life? He didn't pray. He didn't go to church and say, pray for me. He said, I appeal to Caesar. Did Paul know that Christ was over Caesar? More than any man. Why did he appeal to Caesar? Because we're supposed to use those ministers for good that God gave us. Did appealing to Caesar save Paul's life on that occasion? It absolutely did. They were going to turn him over to be hauled back in a prison train back to Jerusalem and be tried there by the Jews. The Jews would have killed him in transit. I appeal to Caesar. That's where I stand. That is admitting the sovereignty of Christ over Caesar. That Christ raised up Caesar to deliver Paul from the Jews. You say, but Caesar ended up killing Paul. Caesar had already killed Jesus. That didn't stop Paul. You say, but I don't like some of the decisions our government makes. I don't think there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The Romans killed Jesus. Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. Did he do it once? Yes, he did it once, of course. Did he do it more than once? Oh, yes. Did he do it more than twice? Oh, yes. Did he rely on Caesar for a great many things throughout the New Testament? Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And we have summarized those all, and I can't remember the final number, but it is around 25. When 40 Jews said that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul, how many Romans took him from Jerusalem to Caesarea? Go read about it. It's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. Did he get an all-expense-paid trip from Caesarea to Rome? Did he get his own rental house in Rome? Mm -hmm. Could he invite anyone he wanted to his rental house? The good life. Who paid for it? This tribute money right here. Caesar paid for it. Some little heartless person, effeminate, a liar, and a slanderer. That's people that do things anonymously. They're effeminate little girls that hide behind anonymity sent me this this week. You know, this was written by a guy named Chuck Baldwin. Romans 13, he doesn't have a clue what Romans 13, 1 through 7 teaches because he believes that he is called by God to be the tip of the spear to fight American government. That it's us that is supposed to sit around and decide whether our government is being good or not, and if it's, if it's not being good in our opinion, then we should be a spear against it. And we should smite princes for equity. Some of you that know your Bibles know there's a verse in there that asks rhetorically, should we smite princes for equity? No, we shouldn't do that. This guy ran for president on the Constitution Party. There are actually people that think they are Christians that voted for the Constitution Party. He got 0.15 of 1% in 2008 when he was the presidential candidate for the Constitution Party. 0.15, let's see. Let me tell you, that is one-seventh of one percent. It's, it's not measurable. It's, it's, it's not measurable. That was fifth place in the election. And of course, we have a two-party system, so parties three through nine don't count. But this man had a church in Florida that once gained the respect of President Reagan, and politicians would appreciate his church since he was so outspokenly Republican until he became part of the Constitution Party. He deserted that church about 10 years ago and is hiding out in Montana with a bunch of other anti-government rabble. His name is Chuck Baldwin. Did I I say his name? His name is Chuck Baldwin. I don't want you to miss who he is. He is no Baptist minister of the gospel and he's no politician. Why don't you go read about his campaign to be the lieutenant governor of Montana? Why don't you go read about that in the last few years? Why don't you find me in the Bible where the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, John the Baptist, or Jesus, or anyone else in the Bible ever wasted any of their time in political activism like Chuck Baldwin. See, Chuck Baldwin is just the last one of a whole string of them in America because Americans are independent, revolutionary-type thinkers. It was Carl McIntyre when I was a boy growing up and his 20th Century Reformation Hour. I want you to go online and look up Carl McIntyre and what happened to the Bible Presbyterian Church 
and his great big program and ministry in Collingswood, New Jersey. Go try to find it. It is gone the way of all flesh and blown away. In between was Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell was the pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. But he got involved in politics that was called the moral majority. We don't do that. Do you know our politics are under the leader and commander, the Lord Jesus? Isaiah 55 and verse 4 says, gives titles of Jesus that are not found anywhere else. Jesus is our leader and our commander. And we obey him. And so we pay taxes to those he's put in authority. Now the Jews had a constitution that is far better than our constitution. Not even comparable to our constitution. There's nothing all that special about our constitution. The Jews had a special constitution. It was the Old Testament. And that Old Testament said, this land is yours and you can annihilate anyone else. And so, is it lawful? And so, they're, they're they're asking a man from Nazareth of Galilee who's got fishermen standing around him that only made it through the sixth grade. Is it lawful to pay tribute? See, they didn't care about the law. They wanted to entangle him. If he would have said it is lawful, he would have agreed with the Herodians who were loyal to Herod, who was an Edomite. Who should be re- the Constitution of Israel said who should be reigning over Israel? Someone from the tribe of Judah. Did that include the Edomites from Esau? No, not quite. If Jesus said, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, then the Herodians would have reported him for sedition against Herod. If he'd have said we should pay taxes, the Pharisees, nationalistic boys that they were, would have said, why are you against the nation? We're going to tell everyone that you're pro-Roman. Are you going to join the zealots and try to assassinate them? The zealots were an extreme group of them. Chucky, the true meaning of submission, and it's about revolution. You say, why are you telling us about John MacArthur? I just want you to know what's going on with the pastors being challenged in California. That's a very different state than ours, so that you can thank God we live in South Carolina and not in California. Right. Accusations of sedition have been used against Christians all along. I never want it to be true of this church. If we go down for something... Let's go down for our love of Jesus Christ and the New Testament gospel of His. Amen. Let's not go down because we didn't pay taxes and wanted to be rebels. Let's not go down because we're, we're writing documents where we want to be the tip of the spear to be used against Washington. Let's not go down for anything like that. That's all wrong. Right. Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, and this passage right here tell us to submit to Caesar. Does Caesar have things that he deserves? He deserves taxes. What if he drafts us? We, we should give them our boys. That's called conscription. It's a tax. The draft is, con, is called conscription. Right. It takes sons for battle. We give what he asks for until it crosses a line where we cannot give it because our God said something different. The apostles told us that we ought to obey God rather than man. Right. And that's where we'll draw the line. We don't care about the character of Caesar. We don't care about the legislation of Caesar as long as it leaves us alone. Caesar can legislate anything that he wants about abortion, about sodomy, about transgendering, about anything else that is contrary to the Word of God. And as long as they will allow us to give birth to our babies, to have heterosexual marriages, and to stay the sex I was given with by God at birth, then we're happy. And we're just going to build houses, live in those houses, and give our children in marriage and pray for the peace of this Babylon. Just like we're told in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Are we giving up sovereignty of Christ to Caesar? No, we're owning the sovereignty of Christ that we can do this to Caesar and Jesus is still in control and will protect us. Because he's the one that said, do it this way and enjoy life. That's Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Now let me get this over with so that we can have a break. I gave you something. Show me the verse where Jesus appealed to Christ on trial for his life. Show me the verse where Jesus appealed to Christ 
when he was going to get scourged. Show me the verse where Jesus appealed to Christ when the magistrates sent and said, you're welcome to leave town. And he said, no, you're going to come and lead me out. That's in Philippi, Acts chapter 16. He appealed to Caesar, and he appealed to his Roman citizenship, and he wasn't giving up any sovereignty to Rome at all. He was giving it up to Jesus because Jesus has total control of Rome and Washington and Moscow and Montana and California and South Carolina. This subject has been dealt with at length at other times, and there are long documents on our website. I don't need to say more to you. When someone comes up and says to you that paying taxes isn't constitutional, paying taxes isn't lawful, say the very words Jesus said, show me the money. And so they reach in and they pull out one of these little things and you say, so that is your money and you don't believe that the IRS income tax is constitutional, why are you using unconstitutional money? Show me your money. Article 1, Section 10 of this Constitution that you worship says that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. Why are you carrying around paper of that hated institution, the Federal Reserve System? Why are you carrying around FRNs and calling them money when they themselves say we are not lawful money, but may be redeemed in lawful money at the nearest Federal Reserve Bank. Then turn it around and say, why are you carrying around worship to the God of Egypt, the all-seeing eye of Isis over a truncated pyramid? They're all frauds. They don't have character. They don't have commitment. They don't understand government. Right. They don't understand what they're carrying around in their pockets. See, Jesus said, show me the tribute money. They reached in their pocket and pulled out a memento to Caesar of the Roman Empire. Can you believe that? These nationalistic Jews were walking around with jingling sounds in their pockets of mementos to Caesar of Rome. And Jesus looked at it. Did Jesus know who was on it? Okay. I had so much pleasure in my office, Lord. And you know, just thinking of you twirling that thing in your fingers and saying, who is this? Caesar. Why are you boys carrying pictures of Caesar around in your pockets and you don't want to pay him? I think you carrying around his money in your pockets means he's got sovereignty over this nation. There's been a de facto change. I think you ought to pay him because he doesn't bear the sword in vain. I mean, all that is not said, but it's said by Paul and Peter. Show me the tribute money, verse 19. How far do they have to look for it? To their pockets. And you may ask similar questions. Whose is this image and superscription? See, that's what I just said to you. What is this truncated pyramid doing on your money? Oh, you really fear God and love God and you think our nation is a Christian nation? Would you tell me what in the world that thing is on your money for? Would you tell me why you're carrying around a fraudulent piece of paper that says it's a note for something it can't pay, won't pay, and no longer even knows what should be paid? See, the Pharisees haven't left yet. Right. And they sneak into churches and they're part of the bad. So, when we go into Matthew 22, we want to learn things for us. Verses 1 through 7, let us never make light of the gospel and understand what happened to the first, the first group that was invited, the Jews. In verses 8 through 15, let's understand that there will be a day of judgment when we are examined as to whether we are truly in Christ or not, not just by profession. Many are called, but few are chosen. Give me 30 seconds on that. Many are called, but few are chosen. Some of you came from Baptists. Some, let me make it plainer. Some of you came from primitive Baptists who took the few and made it all. Or took the few and made it the many. And then set about making it a great part of your doctrine that there are so many unconverted elect. 
when I look at the verse, I know that there is a great number of converted reprobates. And I tried to teach that to you with slides a year or two ago. Let us follow the Bible and its emphasis on priorities and proportions. And then, you know, this pandemic has caused a great deal of questions about the authority of government in, in locking us down and in making us wear masks and in limiting some of our assemblies. And every pastor has a different situation and is in a different, is in 50 different states. But we are going to honor Caesar as far as we can. And for public safety, which all of you practice, because whenever you're sick, you don't come. So you skip our assemblies when you're sick. And so now we have this sickness that they've told us is so transmittable that we need to be careful. Well, as soon as we had the opportunity, we rushed right back to 50% of our fire occupancy certificate. And so we have 125 out of a capacity of 250. We have live stream, which we didn't have before. We rotate everyone that wants to be here and we're doing the best that we can. And the first Sunday of every month, we have the whole church in one place to have the Lord's Supper. I think the Lord's taken care of us right well. And the way we're doing it is we're honoring Christ and we're honoring, we honor him directly and we honor him indirectly by honoring Caesar as well. Right. We all have different opinions about, about Dr. Fauci, about Dr. Burks and, and our president and our governor and the CDC and the WHO, the World Health Organization. But when our governor, Henry McMaster, is given the authority by our president to make the decisions for the state of South Carolina, we're going to honor him as much as we can. If he leaves this indefinite and the death rate remains nearly non-existent, we may end up in a position very similar to John MacArthur's, but I am not there yet. I'm sharing him with you because I like him for his balance. And we will thank the Lord in the second service because on Saturday morning, a week earlier, Los Angeles County had issued a restraining order against John MacArthur and Grace Community Church. On Saturday morning, a judge threw that restraining order out. And John MacArthur, showing his balance, they didn't have services for 21 weeks. And that, that hurt him. And no matter that I disagree with him on 40 points of doctrine, that hurt him. That governor pushing them so hard and outlawing singing while he allowed the protests in the streets shoulder to shoulder of shouting. And John MacArthur sued the state of South Carolina a few days ago to defend himself. But that, that restraining order was thrown out. But John MacArthur gave this to that judge. If you'll throw out that restraining order until we have a full hearing on the first or second week of September, this church will wear masks and socially distance. just want you to know that about him. He's a compromiser in a number of ways. I'll share the, one of the most important ones. He was once a great defender of the incarnate sonship of Jesus Christ, which we earnestly believe and he defended it to 1,300 Baptist pastors of the Bible Baptist Fellowship in 1989. And he defended it like we would defend it. And he defended it so vigorously and so passionately that they were shouting for their brother that he was no heretic. They had called him to defend himself as a heretic. But he caved on that. And the document on their website... GTY, grace to you. You can go find it. Just look it up. It's so pitiful. It's so weak. It hurts. But the only reason I share him with you is because he's in a different state than us. 21 weeks. And I like his balanced position. And though he started his church service the way he did last Sunday morning about the peaceful protest, which I thought was creatively brilliant, and though he has taken a strong stand, and though they sued the state, of self, the state of California this past week, when that judge asked him for a little, 
to throw out the restraining order, he gave it. That's just good balance. Right. And if you read the position paper that he and his elders wrote about why they had to draw a line that 21 weeks without explanation with protests in the streets and other institutions being allowed to assemble, if you read it, it's very thorough. It's not perfect, but it's very good. And he wants to put Christ back on the throne because he let Caesar have 21 weeks. And that's all I'm going to say about him. He's not worth talking about anymore because he's just another Baptist pastor in a, in a difficult state, in a difficult situation, making difficult choices. But I like his balance, and I like his stand. And where the Lord leads us, we'll just trust the Lord to lead us in ways that we'll know exactly what we ought to do. I thank the Lord that he has arranged the numbers for our church so we can have the whole church together. We have exactly the number of members now that we have that we can allow in this facility legally, half of our fire certificate. And so we can have communion the first Sunday of every month like we usually do. And for those of you that want to be here, you can be here most every Sunday. We're going to rotate a few. You don't know what goes on behind the scenes. You do not know how many people in this church have been exposed to COVID-19 and that we have kept away from this church for over two weeks to make sure that they are clean. Many. Just let you know. You don't know what goes on. And we've tried to protect the elderly and those with respiratory conditions. And I believe we've done as well as we can and should for the sake of our governor, for the sake of our Lord, Amen. who is the head of our governor. Please stand with me.